This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Houston, we have seen this before. There have been several people on various television networks that claim that this year's Final Four in Houston is something we have never seen before. Yet, I hate to disagree with them, but we have seen this before. Hello sports fans and welcome back to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we discuss the best of sports from back in the day. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and I'm glad, grateful, and thankful for you taking time out of your day or evening or night to give us a listen. And just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you hear us. And so the Final Four is upon us in Houston, Texas, and what do we have? Well, for starters, it is only the fourth time since 1979 when the tournament became quote-unquote modern. We have no number one seeds in the Final Four. More on that later. But more to the point, this is the first Final Four since 1970 during the height of the UCLA dynasty that we have three teams making their debut in the Final Four. In our main event for this episode, we'll look through the lens of sports history to get a closer look at the Final Four teams that are heading to Houston, aka Space City, in search for a national championship. The teams, UConn, which is the only one that have been this far and have won multiple championships in its history, and also they have a historical edge in this Final Four that is eerily shocking once I discovered it. The others, San Diego State and Miami, notable football schools, and tiny Florida Atlantic University and only their second NCAA tournament appearance, and amazingly though, have the best record of the four teams heading to NRG Stadium. Since this show is devoted to the Final Four, we're going to be taking a departure from what we normally do here on the show, and instead, do, instead of doing a top history-making performances of the week in history, we're going to take a look at the past Final Four that have been in Houston, including UConn, one of this year's participants winning it all in 2011. And finally, in our shout-out segment, we're going to be sending a shout-out to the 1980 Final Four. Now, what was so special about that Final Four? Well, it was the first time that no number one seeds reached the Final Four that year in Indianapolis, which was just like this year. So sit back, pump up the volume, because you're going down sports memory lane with the top down on Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, which is a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast, now streaming on your favorite music platform.
Go to pigskintails.com. Hello, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and you are tuned in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we talk about sports from a historical perspective. Now, this week is the Final Four in Houston, Texas, and for the fourth time ever, I really think that the teams all need to wear one of those Hello, My Name Is stickers on their jerseys to identify themselves to the television viewing public that don't watch college basketball until the tournament begins. Well, at least one of them is somewhat a familiar name, and that is the University of Connecticut. And no, we're not talking about the women's team. UConn is back in the Final Four and the head and headlines a group that if people would have been correct in picking this Final Four, either they would be incredibly lucky or may have some dealings with Christopher Lloyd's character in Back to the Future. Along with the Huskies, the Final Four includes San Diego State, coached by Brian Dutcher, a former assistant to Steve Fisher, who was previously the head coach of the Aztecs and who most notably Ned led Michigan to the 1989 National Championship as an interim head coach after Bill Frieder was fired by Bo Schembechler after he took a head coaching job at Arizona State ahead of the tournament that year. Fisher was also later the coach of the Fab Five. And speaking of, on a side note, can you believe it's been 30 years since Michigan lost to North Carolina in the, in the Superdome on Chris Webber's infamous timeout? That's been 30 years. Wow, just saying. Along with the Aztecs is another football school, the U. The University of Miami, coached by Jim Laranega, who coached George Mason to the 2006 Final Four. In that season, his Patriots defeated who to get to the Final Four? Yes, of course, UConn. And to round out the Final Four in Space City is Florida Atlantic, the Hurricanes basketball lake neighbor located in Boca Raton, Florida. The Owls have captured the nation's hearts by reaching the Final Four in only its second appearance in the Big Dance. And for most sports fans, the only big name that comes from their athletic program is former Owls head coach and college football Hall of Famer and who also helped found the, uh, the football program, Howard Schnellenberger, who also cursed the Hurricanes. Now, as I alluded to earlier, this was the first Final Four that featured three teams that are reaching the Final Four for the first time since 1970, since the 1970 Final Four in College Park, Maryland. That year, UCLA, who was eyeing its fourth straight national title and its sixth in seven years, would try to do it again in year one ALC. ALC, of course, means after Lou Alcindor. John Wooden led the Bruins that was nicknamed by sports writers as the team without was joined by St. Bonaventure, who was led for the most of that season by future NBA Hall of Famer Bob Lanier, who didn't play in the Final Four after tearing a ligament in the regional final against Villanova. The Aggies of New Mexico State also made it to College Park after winning the Midwest region coached by fourth-year head coach Lou Henson and center Sam Lacey. And rounding out the 70 Final Four was the third of the debut three, Jacksonville University. The Dolphins were led by who many sports writers at the time considered to be the heir apparent to Alcindor. And that was center Artis Gilmore, who was 7'2", but 7'5", if you included the Afro. As it turned out, UCLA defeated New Mexico State 93-77, then behind tournament most outstanding player Sidney Wicks. 
The Bruins beat Jacksonville along with Artis Gilmore and his awesome hair in his 80-69 win for the national title. Now fast forward to the here and now. Connecticut is in his final four for the fifth time in program history and is looking to claim his fifth national title, all of them won since 1999. In 99 that season, the Huskies led by Jim Calhoun, tournament most outstanding player Rip Hamilton, and diminutive point guard Khalid Alamine upset Carlos Boozer, Elton Brand, Shane Battier, and the Duke Blue Devils at Tropicana Field 77-74 for that program's first national title. Just a short five years later, with the new crop of stars for the Huskies and proclaiming that Storage Connecticut was the new capital of collegiate basketball, the Huskies claimed their second national title, beating Georgia Tech 82-73 in San Antonio. That season, UConn pulled off something that had never been done before. That season, the men's and the women's team each won national championships. On the men's side, tournament most outstanding player Emeka Okafor Led, to, led with the likes of Ben Gordon, Charlie Villanueva, and Josh Boone as the member of the supporting cast to give Coach Calhoun his second national title. Coach Calhoun will win one more national title in 2011, beating the Butler Bulldogs 53-41 for the school's 11th straight win and UConn's third and final title under Calhoun. That Final Four was in Houston, just like this year's Final Four. And do you know what else is in common with this year's event? The teams that made it to Reliance Stadium, Virginia Commonwealth, Butler, and Kentucky, along with UConn, and none of them were number one seeds. Does that sound familiar? It was the third time in the, that the Final Four would not have a, the top field in the group, and UConn was in it, and won it all, seemingly out of nowhere. And just like this year, UConn came out of nowhere. Their most recent national title came in 2014 under head coach and former player Kevin Ollie. This time staying in Texas, the Huskies beat Kentucky 60-54 in Arlington for their fourth title in program history. The Huskies' opponent in the national semifinal was the University of Miami, coached by Jim Laranega, who coached George Mason to a surprise entry into the 2006 Final Four. The Canes, 28-7 on the season, is in their first Final Four and their 12th appearance in the tournament. Now, of course, when you see that familiar you, you automatically think about the football program. Or maybe, if you're old enough, the great college baseball program they had down there back in the day. Yet, Miami is in the Final Four, and not since the days of future Hall of Famer Rick Barry when he attended Miami in the early 1960s have there been such a buzz around the basketball program. Their road to the Final Four took them through Drake, not the rapper, Indiana, number one seed Houston, and their comeback against Texas propelled them to Houston. The third team in this year's Final Four, and the second of the debut trio, is the Canes neighbors in South Florida, the Florida Atlantic Owls. Coached by Dusty May, the, R the Owls came out of the East region with a mark of 35-3. MAU beat Memphis, Tournament darling Fairleigh Dickinson, who became the second 16 seed to beat a one when they vanquished Purdue, Tennessee, and Kansas State at Madison Square Garden. The Owls made the best of their opportunity in the tournament, which is only their second appearance in the Big Dance. Their only other appearance took place in 2002, when coached by former UNLV star Sidney Green, won the Atlantic Sun Tournament and reached the NCAA Tournament only to lose in the first round as a 14th seed to Alabama 
8678 in Greenville. And finally to round out the field in Houston is San Diego State. Another school known for football and the school I dreamed about attending when I was in high school for its, for its broadcasting department. The Aztecs, coached by former Steve Fisher assistant Brian Dutcher, who had won a national championship as an assistant in 1989 with Michigan, is back in the Final Four. It is his Aztecs, this 15th trip to the Big Dance, but of course, their first Final Four. Now, prior to this year, the Aztecs reached the regional final in 2014 when they lost to Arizona in Anaheim, 70-64. Whenever I think of the Aztecs basketball program, I think of two players that hooped on Matazuma Mesa. Current NBA star Kawhi Leonard and Tony Gwynn. Yes, that Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was a two-sport star at San Diego State in the late 1970s. He was, also, he was so good, in fact... He was drafted by the San Diego Clippers in the 1981 NBA Draft. Anyone could include Tony Gwynn. If you can include Tony Gwynn in any sports history discussion, it is a great discussion. And that was this episode's main event. And coming up, Houston, City of Industry, City of Oil, City of NASA, and this weekend, the Final Four. After this break, three other times that Houston was the site of the Final Four, which includes one of the greatest buzzer beaters in tournament history. And that's it. This is Historically Speaking Sports. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. Give me a second to talk about Joe Zagorski's pro football in the 1970s. In the 70s, the sport of pro football grew in popularity like never before. The game became more modern, more technologically savvy, and thanks to the tinkering of the rules throughout the decade, the product that one saw in pro football made the struggle on the field so much more exciting to watch. When you hear Joe Zagorski talk about pro football in the 1970s, it will bring you back to a time and place where your recollections of the 70s are joyfully relived once again. Joe explores many different facets and elements of the 70s, like the players, the teams, the games, the controversies, and the legacies that surround the decade. Take a listen to Joe Zagorski, an NFL author and host of the Pro Football in the 1970s podcast. It's just one of the great podcasts available through the Sports History Network. Check them out at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello and welcome back to the program. And like I said earlier, a little change in the format in this episode as we celebrate the Final Four, which is slated for this weekend in Houston, Texas. Houston has been the site of so many great sporting events over the years. The tennis battle of the sexes, college basketball's game of the century in Astrodome. It was the home of the Brute Bonnet Bowl for a number of years. And the Super Bowl, of course, has been there several times. And once again, the Final Four will be determined in Space City for the fourth time. 
Shortly after the 1968 game of the century between UCLA and Houston in the Astrodome, college basketball decided to bring the Final Four to the eighth wonder of the world in 1971 for the very first time. That season, the UCLA Bruins was once again back to look, looking to win their fifth straight national championship. And joining them in the Final Four in Houston was the likes of Villanova, Kansas, and Western Kentucky. The Bruins were led by Sidney Wicks, Curtis Rowe, and Henry Bibby, the father of former NBA All-Star guard Mike Bibby. Meanwhile, Villanova was paced by head coach Jack Kraft and tournament most outstanding player that year, Howard Porter. Kansas was in the Final Four also, and they were led by future ABA guard Roger Brown. And Western Kentucky was coached by John Oldham and consensus All-American Jim McDaniels. UCLA were going to win their fifth straight title and seventh overall, beating Porter and Villanova 68-62. For the Wildcats, it would be their last appearance in the national championship game until that fateful April Fool's night in 1985, when they made fools out of a lot of people as they upset Georgetown and Lexington, Kentucky. More from Villanova in a minute. Now it would be several years before college basketball's biggest event would return to Houston. Actually, it would be 40 years. Moving next door from the Astrodome into Reliance Stadium, UConn, Butler, Kentucky, and Virginia Commonwealth would battle it out in the 2011 Final Four. Led by tournament most outstanding player Kimber Walker, he parlayed an 11-game winning streak and to defeat Butler in a low-scoring slugfest 53-41 in a game that was not easy on the eyes. In fact, at halftime, Butler scored only 18 points, which prompted CBS analyst Greg Anthony to exclaim that that was the worst half of basketball ever in a championship game. No matter how it looked, the Huskies would prevail. And oh, by the way, the 2011 Final Four was the last one before this year's semifinal and final featured no number one seeds. Now, the most recent Final Four to take place in H-Town may be its most memorable. In 2016, Villanova was back in the city of Big Hats with head coach Jay Wright along with North Carolina, Oklahoma, Syracuse, and Hall of Fame coach Jim Beheim. After North Carolina defeated the Orange and the Wildcats destroyed the Sooners in the semis, the national championship game was set on Monday, April 6, 2016. In a highly competitive game that featured several lead changes, the game came down, the game came down to the final seconds. With 4.7 remaining, Marcus Page connected on an off-balance three-pointer on the wing to tie the game at 74. On the next possession, Wildcat guard Archie Ar Ryan Archidiacono tossed an underhanded pass to Chris Jenkins in stride and connected on a game-winning, championship-winning three-pointer to win Villanova's second national title, their first since winning it all in 1985 with Raleigh Massimino, Ed Pinckney, and the perfect game. Now let's hope that this year's Final Four in H-Town lives up to the high bar of excitement that the last Final Four gave, at least the championship game that is. And coming up next, we're going to send a shout out to the 1980 Final Four. It was the Final Four first, the first in Indianapolis, the first of the so-called modern, modern era, and the first that featured a Final Four with no number one seeds, just like this year. So what happened in Naptown in 1980? We'll talk about it on the other side of this break.
At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice! In the Row 1 shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1 for access to the full Row 1 catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello once again and welcome back to the podcast. Glad you were able to stick around. To round out the show, I normally do something called the shout out. And in this edition, we're going to send a shout out to the 1980 Final Four which was located in the great city of Indianapolis, where the Final Four had been contested seven different times. However, in 1980, the city they call Naptown was the site of an unprecedented Final Four, and what I would like to refer to as the Final Four of firsts. After the 1979 Final Four, which was when college basketball had its highest ratings ever, and it became a cultural happening, The 1980 NCAA basketball tournament actually entered the modern age and wanted to capitalize on its newly found popularity. The tournament consisted of 48 schools, which was up from 40 teams from the season before. Yet, that was not the only change that took place that tournament. In 1980, a conference was now granted an unlimited number of at-large bids. Before 1975, to reach the NCAA tournament, a team had to win their conference tournament. Then, from 1975 through 1979, a conference was only allowed one at-large team. Another change that was implemented was the bracket was the bracket seeding, in an effort to make each region evenly competitive as possible. In the years prior, teams were placed in different regions based on geographic considerations. The third major change: all teams would be seeded based on subjective judgment by a committee. Hence the birth of Selection Sunday as we know it today. Now when the tournament field was selected in that first weekend of March of 1980, the four regions were filled out in this new format. The top seeds included Syracuse, coached by young Jim Beheim. They were the top seed in the East region. Teams in that part of the bracket was looking to advance to the spectrum in Philadelphia. The Mid-East region where the final there would be at Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky. The top seed there was, yeah, you guessed it, Kentucky. 
Coached by Joe B. Hall, the Wildcats had won a national championship just two seasons prior in St. Louis, led by Jack Goose Givens' 41 points in the championship game. The Midwest region, where teams that advanced would end up at the summit in Houston, the top seed there was LSU, coached by Dale Brown and led by forward Rudy Macklin. And finally, in the West region, where the Rhodes ended up at Arizona State's Activity Center in Tempe, the top team there was DePaul, coached by longtime De Blue Devils coach Ray Meyer and future NBA All-Stars Mark Aguirre and Terry Cummings. As the tournament began, something strange started to happen. All of the top seeds began to lose. Out West in the round of 32, DePaul would lose to UCLA 77-71 in Tempe. In the East, Syracuse would reach the Sweet 16 yet lose to Iowa 88-77, coached by future Arizona Wildcats head coach Lute Olson, who would eventually win a national title some 17 years later in Indianapolis. Meanwhile in the Midwest, playing in their home arena no less, Kentucky was defeated by their rival from the 1978 final and future chief antagonist, the, Blue, the Duke Blue Devils. This tournament would be the last tournament for Duke head coach Bill Foster, as he would be replaced that, by, that fall by some funny named coach from Army named Mike Kuzi. Oh, how you say that? Shashevsky. Oh, Mike. Mike. Shashevsky. Okay, I got you. The next stop. The next top seed to go down was LSU. The Tigers would be upended by Denny Crum and the Louisville team, 86 to 66 in Houston. More from them a little bit later. By the time the tournament had been whittled down to the Final Four, there were no top seeds remaining in the tournament. Yet that remained. Yet it remained interesting. First, Iowa. Coached by Lute Olson. They were in the Final Four just for the first time since 1956. Then there was Louisville, making their first appearance since 1975, led by former UCLA assistant coach Denny Crum and guard Daryl Griffith, aka Dr. Duncanstein. Then there was Purdue, who came in with the top pick of the upcoming NBA draft, seven-foot center Joe Barry Carroll, in their first Final Four since the Rick Mount days of 1969. And rounding out the Final Four in Indy was UCLA, back for the first time since, John, since the John Wooden days in the mid-1970s. The Bruins came in coached by Larry Brown. Yes, that Larry Brown, the one that led Kansas to the national title in 1988 with Danny Manning. And on Saturday, March 22, 1980, the four teams, Iowa, UCLA, Purdue, and Louisville, converged on Market Square Arena in downtown Indy for the Final Four. In the first game of the Saturday doubleheader, Louisville, behind Daryl Griffith's 34 points, defeated Iowa 80-72. Teammate Rodney McCray chipped in with 14. In a losing effort, Hawk Hawkeye guard Kenny Arnold led the way with 20 points. In the second game of the national semifinal twin bill, the Bruins will return to the national title game after a five-year absence, beating Joe Barry Carroll and Purdue 67-62. Future NBA star Kiki Vandeweghe had 24 points and Mike Sanders chipped in with 12. Boilermakers sophomore guard Keith Edmondson led the way with 23 points, while Carroll was held in check with only 17. So the stage was set. 
with no with the Bruins eyeing their 11 national championship with eyeing 11 national championships and their first without the Wizard of Westwood John Wooden set to take on the Cardinals and recently named National Player of the Year Daryl Griffith. This was the rematch of the 1975 National Semifinal when UCLA escaped with a 75-74 win over Louisville. For most of the game, it looked like we were going to have a repeat from that semifinal from five years earlier. Yet Louisville had little had little more firepower down the stretch, which included Griffith, who had a game high 23, as the Cardinals claimed their first ever national championship with a 59-54 win. So the 1980 Final Four, the first with no top seeds. There would be three more Final Fours with no top seeds, including this year in Houston. And that would do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they are released. And also, please check us out on Twitter at HistoricallySP2, where you can get your daily dose of sports history. And you could also drop us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. Also, please Tell your family, tell your neighbor, tell a friend, even tell a passerby on the street about us. I really would appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Dana Augusta, your old saying so long.